David Williams graced us with his presence earlier in the week where we were talking about the state of South Africa's rail structure. And David, I was quite surprised at the interest that was displayed by the business community in that interview, given that there's been further developments in the last few hours. I thought it was appropriate for us to actually pick up on this. But it's almost like you've hit a raw nerve. The railway lines are there. We don't see trains on them. And suddenly someone explains to us what has happened and our eyes have been opened up by you. I've done more work on it uh, since we last spoke, and it just gets worse when you look at the detail of it. I think the the core issue here is security, and maybe that's an issue beyond rail. Uh, if you look at a country that is largely industrialized, certainly in the urban areas like South Africa, there's a lot of infrastructure. And to drive an economy like this, you need functioning organizations in rail, in electricity, in water, and so on. And we've had repeated allegations from Eskom recently about deliberate internal sabotage of uh, infrastructure. And the railways, certainly uh, there may be sabotage, certainly the burning of trains in the Western Cape over the last few years, which we, we haven't really discussed. Uh, this is arson, uh, criminal arson, and hundreds of train carriages at a cost of millions of rand have been burnt and destroyed in the Western Cape. That's arson stroke sabotage. And, of course, the network itself uh, is in such decay that very few trains are running. And just to restore this network uh, back to something like what it looked before for passenger rail and for freight rail, but we're talking passenger rail agency at the moment, is going to cost hundreds of millions, possibly billions uh, of rand. So the issue is security before you do anything else. How do you stop people stealing the railway lines? And it's become... Uh, a kind of brigandage. Uh, There's no law and order when it comes to protecting the infrastructure. Uh, Reports have come through uh, over the years of thieves taking the copper cables, the overhead wires, the signaling wires, digging up stations to get at cables under the ground. And of course, this happens to City Power in Johannesburg all the time as well. There appears to be no attempt or no strategy, certainly nothing's working, to stop these guys. They do it in broad daylight. There appears to be no arrests, let alone convictions. Let's just imagine you're sitting in Cyril Ramaphosa's shoes. You see what's going on with the rail network. So you would want to get the right person in there to actually start at least arresting the decline. Now, he's done that with Transnet by bringing in Porsche Derby. On South African Passenger Rail Services, or PRAZA as it's called, it appeared that he did something similar with the appointment of Jose Matthews earlier this year. But in the last few hours, Jose Matthews has effectively been fired uh, for having not disclosed that he, while he was in exile, had a British citizenship and he's retained that British citizenship. And in other words, he's a dual citizen. What do you make of this, David? Uh, I, my suspicious mind is taking me down some very dark alleys. Yeah, well, and he was on suspension, and they said this was the reason. And there were some hints at some other activity, goals not achieved. Uh, he hadn't achieved what he's supposed to achieve. So there are a couple of issues here. One is the man comes in. He's been there six months or so. Uh, what one hears, he was trying to put things in place to, to start fixing things. Now he's been dismissed, apparently. 
for having not declared a dual citizenship on security grounds. And you, you have to ask, well, what is so top secret about passenger rail? Uh, and this is an industry where there's a lot of cooperation across the world. The technology is very common. Uh, countries cooperate with each other on what kind of trains to run and on procurement and things like that. So it's a very strange reason. It's not like he's a general in the defense force. Uh, so what are these? what is the security issue? And surely you could find a way of saying, oh, you should have declared that. Well, we'll forgive you. We'll find a way around it. Uh, and as, as he uh, has made clear, um, this was never a secret. He lived in exile in the UK. His father was Joe Matthews. He comes from a great struggle family. He lived in England for a long time. He had British citizenship. He's also a South African citizenship. There are a lot of people who, who have this status. Uh, whether he wrote it down on a piece of paper or not, to me, seems immaterial. As you say, one's mind goes to what is the real reason for them doing this. They actually worked quite hard to get him in, and they understood the board that this was an appointment that badly needed to be made. They've had a dozen CEOs, most of them acting over the last 10, 12, 15 years. All of them have failed. Some of them are, are, have been before the Zondo Commission and their questions about ethics and so on. So this was a really important po appointment to make, especially given the damage that was done over the last 18 months in particular. A really important appointment. So you'd think they would do their homework, get the right man and appoint him. Then when he was appointed, there were objections because he was too old. So he didn't meet the civil service requirements of, of being under 63 on appointment. And they rejected those objections. And they said, no, no, he's the right man for the job. We'll find a way. There is a, there is a way of uh, appointing someone who's over age. And I'm sure there's a clause somewhere that says the minister has discretion if they want to. So they really tried hard to appoint him. They must have done homework. He's only been there six months. It's hard to imagine uh, if he's made big mistakes, what they are in such a short time. I mean, in such a position, you spend the first few months finding out where everything is and who, who's running what and trying to get things going. So then you start saying, well, what is it? Is he uncovering corruption that certain interests don't want uncovered? Is he bumping up against vested interests? Is there a political dimension to this? Has he upset people in the government? Has he upset people among the partners of government? These are the kinds of questions we ask when we're told that he's been, been dismissed for having dual citizenship. So what, going back to the fantasy of being in Sir Ramaphosa's shoes, what should the president be doing about this, given that this is a national asset that has been massively destroyed, lots of corruption, as you mentioned earlier, uh, there were former CEOs of uh, Prazo who've appeared before the Zondo Commission. Let's go back into his shoes. He he can't just wipe or, or punch his pilot like wipe his or wash his hands of this. Surely he has to get involved. Well, in this case particularly, because it's this very strange anomaly, uh, when they split passenger rail from freight rail, it was a, a unified organization and it's now divided. Now, this has caused huge structural legacy issues. So, for example, in the old South African railways, Transnet in the early years, you had passenger trains and good trains all using the same network. Some lines dedicated to passengers only, like some of the suburban lines, the Mabapani corridor outside Pretoria, for example, 
the big uh, link to Soweto. There's a, a four-lane railway, uh, four-line railway going to Soweto. These are dedicated passenger lines, but many areas, goods trains use them as well, and that worked perfectly well under the old Transnet South African railways. For some reason, they felt that these two functions should be split. The result is you have, over the years, Prasa complaining that Transnet won't give them locomotives. Passenger trains no longer enjoy priority. In the old days, they always enjoyed priority. They were scheduled, and that had the effect of imposing a discipline on the entire network. Trains had to run on time in very uh, scheduled spots, and if one train went wrong or broke down, then it would disrupt the whole network. Now, passenger trains have lost that priority on the joint lines. Transnet Freight Rail doesn't care about passengers, and why should it? That's not its brief. And there's a history, if you go through it, uh, corruption takes the headlines, but there's a history of internal strife between the two railway managers. They bicker about locomotives. They bicker about who's going to fix what. There is land which Prasa owns, which Transnet used to own, and there's land that should be transferred that hasn't been transferred. And there's a lot of accounting issues to do with the split between these two organizations, which happened 20 years ago. And the accountants and the managers fight about who owes whom what, uh, who's responsible for what, which trains run where, and who has priority. And this is all leaving out the theft and the corruption and inefficiencies in other ways. So the fundamental thing here, uh, Alec, it's, you, know, you and I have talked to, interviewed people over many years on governance, and it sounds such a boring subject. In this case, it is a crucially important subject because the PRASA reports to the Minister of Transport and Transnet reports to the Minister of Public Enterprises. Now, the only way to get these two organizations together, it would seem, because they've not really got together yet, is to abolish that distinction and get Transnet to report to the Minister of Transport, structurally. I'm not talking about personalities. We're talking about structure here. Now, you've got two ministers running different organizations. Their managers presumably have different incentives, different ways of doing things, which, as you say, leaves it up to only one man in the country uh, to sort this out, and that's the president, because he's the only one who could say and get through a decision to say, right, let's combine these two portfolios or let's move Transnet to uh, Prasa uh, or join them and make them uh, back again together and report to the Minister of Transport, who really is the person who should be responsible for Transnet. And I think it's bad enough running a business, difficult enough running a business, without such structural impediments. So you've got double structures that don't always talk to each other, are sometimes hostile towards each other, and in the circumstances of disaster, of corruption and theft. In military terms, it would be like having two allies who are actually fighting each other instead of fighting the enemy. The enemy in this case is corruption, inefficiency, waste, dereliction, uh, disaster of, of a rail network, and it appears to be no urgency, uh, no clear thinking, no common sense. There's no shortage of PowerPoint presentations and meetings, you can be sure of that. But whether this is work that's going to produce a solution uh, is certainly not clear. And I think it's a presidential responsibility uh, it's a it's a simple thing to grasp and not so simple to do, but simple to grasp. But there's no evidence that anyone's realized that this is a problem. 
Well, until Sir Ramaphosa actually does that, uh, there's going to be further costs to the taxpayer because Jose Matthews is going to be challenging this, no doubt, uh, on the grounds that he was unfairly dismissed. And if that means another however many years in court uh, where he fights against the state, that means taxpayers have to cough up again for something that should be relatively easy to address. And Alec, I don't think people realize the paralyzing effect that any such thing has on any organization. Once you have an acting appointment, the person who's acting can't do anything. He's he's keeping the seat warm, you know, holding the ball for the moment. He can't run with it. And everyone under him then pauses and is not sure what to do, doesn't want to make a mistake, is not led. You will have factions developing loyal to the fired CEO. Who's going to come in and when is someone going to come in to replace him? Uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's um, possible to express in a big organization how the lack of a CEO, uh, the effect that has. I worked at South African breweries for a few years, like you in the private sector. Uh, at South African breweries, they don't have acting appointments. They don't make them. Uh, whenever someone resigns or dies or moves to another job, there's immediately someone who has been already identified who steps into that position. They don't believe in acting appointments. In the state sector, it appears to be the norm, and that should be, therefore, no surprise why a lot doesn't get done. (laughs) 